Welcome to Fantasties, a fairy romance for men and women by George MacDonald. This is Chapter 3, Part 2. Look there, she said. Look at his fingers. Just as I had been reading in the book, the setting sun was shining through a cleft in the clouds piled up in the west and a shadow as of a large distorted hand with thick knobs and humps on the fingers so much that it was much wider across the fingers than across the undivided part of the hand passed slowly over the little blind and then as slowly returned in the opposite direction. He is almost awake, mother, and greedier than usual tonight. Hush, child, you need not make him more angry with us than he is, for you do not know how soon something may happen to oblige us to be in the forest after nightfall. But you are in the forest, said I. How is it that you are safe here? He dares not come nearer than he is now, she replied. For any of these four oaks at the corners of our cottage would tear him to pieces. They are our friends. But he stands there and makes awful faces at us sometimes and stretches out his long arms and fingers and tries to kill us with fright. For indeed, that is his favourite way of doing. Pray, keep out of his way tonight. Shall I be able to see these things? said I. That I cannot tell yet not knowing how much of the fairy nature there is in you. But we shall soon see whether you can discern the fairies in my little garden, and that will be some guide to us. Are there tree fairies too, as well as the flowers? I asked. They are of the same race, she replied, though those you call fairies in your country are chiefly the young children of the flower fairies. They are very fond of having fun with the thick people, as they call you, for like most children, they like fun better than anything else. Why do you have flowers so near you, then? Do they not annoy you? Oh, no, they are very amusing, with their mimicries of grown people and mock solemnities. Sometimes they will act a whole playthrough before my eyes, with perfect composure and assurance for they are not afraid of me. Only, as soon as they have done, they burst into peals of tiny laughter, as if it was such a joke to have been serious over anything. These I speak of, however, are the fairies of the garden. They are more staid and educated than those of the fields and woods. Of course, they have near relations amongst the wild flowers, but they patronise them and treat them as country cousins who know nothing of life and very little of manners. Now and then, however, they are compelled to envy the grace and simplicity of the natural flowers. Do they live in the flowers? I said. I cannot tell, she replied. There is something in it I do not understand. Sometimes they disappear altogether, even from me, though I know they are near. They seem to die always with the flowers they resemble, and by whose names they are called, but whether they return to life with the fresh flowers, 
or whether it be new flowers, new fairies, I cannot tell. They have as many sorts of dispositions as men and women, while their moods are yet more variable. Twenty different expressions will cross their little faces in half a minute. I often amuse myself watching them, but I have never been able to make a personal acquaintance with any of them. If I speak to one, he or she looks up in my face as if I were not worth heeding, gives a little laugh and runs away. Here the woman started, as if suddenly recollecting herself, and said in a low voice to her daughter, Make haste, go and watch him, and see in what direction he goes. I may as well mention here that the conclusion I arrived at from the observations I was afterwards able to make was that the flowers die because the fairies go away, not that the fairies disappear because the flowers die. The flowers seem a sort of houses for them, or outer bodies, which they can put on or off where they please. Just as you could form some idea of the nature of a man from the kind of house he built, if you followed his own taste, so you could, without seeing the fairies, tell what any one of them is like by looking at the flower, till you feel that you understand it. For just what the flower says to you, would the face and form of the fairy say, only so much more plainly, as a face and human figure can express more than a flower. For the house or the clothes, though like the inhabitant or the wearer, cannot be wrought into an equal power of utterance, yet you would see a strange resemblance, almost oneness between the flower and the fairy, which you could not describe, but which described itself to you. Whether all the flowers are fairies, I cannot determine any more than I can be sure whether all men and women have souls. The woman and I continued the conversation for a few minutes longer. I was much interested by the information she gave me, and astonished at the language in which she was able to convey it. It seemed that intercourse with the fairies was no bad education in itself, but now the daughter returned with the news that the ash had just gone away in a southwesterly direction, and as my course seemed to lie eastward, she hoped I should be in no danger of meeting him if I departed at once. I looked out of the little window, and there stood the ash tree, to my eyes the same as before, but I believed that they knew better than I did and prepared to go. I pulled out my purse, but to my dismay there was nothing in it. The woman, with a smile, begged me not to trouble myself, for money was not of the slightest use there, and I might meet with people in my journeys whom I could not recognise to be fairies. It was well I had no money to offer, for nothing offended them so much. They would think, she added, that you were making game of them, and that is their particular privilege with regard to us. So we went together into the little garden, which sloped down towards a lower part of the wood. Here to my great pleasure, all was life and bustle. There was still light enough from the day to see a little, and the pale half-moon, halfway to the zenith, was reviving every moment. The whole garden was like a carnival, 
with tiny, gaily decorated forms in groups, assemblies, processions, pairs or trios moving stately on, running about wildly or sauntering hither and thither. From the cups or bells of tall flowers, as from balconies, some looked down on the masses below, now bursting with laughter, now grave as owls. But even in their deepest solemnity, seeming only to be waiting for the arrival of the next laugh, some were launched on a little marshy stream at the bottom, in boats chosen from the heaps of last year's leaves that lay about, curled and withered. These soon sank with them, whereupon they swam ashore and got others. Those who took fresh rose leaves for their boats floated the longest. But for these they had to fight, for the fairy of the rose tree complained bitterly that they were stealing her clothes and defended her property bravely. You can't wear half you've got, said some. Never you mind, I don't choose you to have them. They are my property. Oh, for the good of the community, said one, and ran off with a great hollow leaf. But the rose fairy sprang after him. What a beauty she was. Only too like a drawing room young lady. Knocked him heels over head as he ran and recovered her great red leaf. But in the meantime, twenty had hurried off in different directions with others just as good. And the little creature sat down and cried. And then, in a pet, set a perfect pink snowstorm of petals from her tree, leaping from branch to branch and stamping and shaking and pulling. At last, after another good cry, she chose the biggest she could find and ran away laughing to launch her boat amongst the rest. But my attention was first and chiefly attracted by a group of fairies near the cottage. They were talking together around what seemed a last dying primrose. They talked singing and their talk made a song, something like this. Sister Snowdrop died before we were born. She came like a bride in a snowy morn. What's a bride? What is snow? Never tried. Do not know. Who told you about her? Little primrose there cannot do without her. Oh, so sweetly fair. Never fear, she will come, primrose dear. Is she dumb? She'll come by and by. You will never see her. She went home to die till the new year. Snowdrop! Tis no good to invite her. Primrose is very rude. I will bite her. Oh, you naughty pocket. Look, she drops her head. She deserved it, Rocket. And she was nearly dead. To a hammock, off with you and swing alone. No one would laugh with you. No, not one. Now let us moan and cover her o'er. Primrose has gone all but the flower. Here is a leaf. Lay her upon it. Follow in grief. Pocket has done it. Deeper, poor creature. Winter may come. He cannot reach her. That is a hum. She is buried, the beauty. Now she is done. That was the duty. Now for the fun. And with a wild laugh, they sprang away. Most of them towards the cottage. During the latter part of the song talk, they had formed themselves into a funeral procession, two of them bearing poor Primrose, whose death Pocket had hastened by biting her stalk upon one of her own great leaves. They bore her solemnly along some distance, and then buried her under a tree. Although I say her, 
I saw nothing but the withered primrose flower on its long stalk. Pocket, who had been expelled from the company by common consent, went sulkily away towards her hammock, for she was the fairy of the Calcularia, and looked rather wicked. When she reached its stem, she stopped and looked round. I could not help speaking to her, for I stood near her. I said, Pocket, how could you be so naughty? I'm never naughty, she said, half crossly, half defiantly. Only if you come near my hammock, I will bite you, and then you will go away. Why did you bite poor Primrose? Because, she said, we should never see Snowdrop, as if we were not good enough to look at her, and she was the proud thing, served her right. Oh, Pocket, Pocket, said I. But by this time, the party which had gone towards the house rushed out again, shouting and screaming with laughter. Half of them were on the cat's back, and half held on by her fur and tail, or ran beside her. Till, more coming to their help, the furious cat was held fast, and they proceeded to pick the sparks out of her with thorns and pins, which they handled like harpoons. Indeed, there were more instruments at work around her than there could have been sparks in her. One little fellow, who held on hard by the tip of the tail, with his feet planted on the ground at an angle of 45 degrees, helping to keep her fast, administered a continuous flow of admonitions to Pussy. Now, Pussy, be patient. You know quite well it is for your own good. You cannot be comfortable with all those sparks in you, and indeed I am charitably disposed to believe here he became very pompous, that they are the cause of all your bad temper. So we must have them all out, every one, else we shall be reduced to the painful necessity of cutting your claws and pulling out your eye-teeth. Quiet, pussy, quiet! But with a perfect hurricane of feline curses, the poor animal broke loose and dashed across the garden and through the hedge faster than even the fairies could follow. Oh, never mind, never mind, we shall find her again. And by that time, she will have laid in a fresh stock of sparks. Hooray! And off they set, after some new mischief. But I will not linger to enlarge on the amusing display of these frolicsome creatures. Their manners and habits are now so well known to the world, having been so often described by eyewitnesses, that it would only be indulging self-conceit to add my account in full to the rest. I cannot help wishing, however, that my readers could see them for themselves. Especially do I desire that they should see the fairy of the daisy, a little chubby round-eyed child with such innocent trust in his look. Even the most mischievous of the fairies will not tease him, although he did not belong to their set at all, but was quite a little country bumpkin. He wandered about alone and looked at everything, with his hands in his little pockets and a white nightcap on. Oh, the darling! He was not so beautiful as many other wild flowers I saw afterwards, but so dear and loving in his looks and little confident ways. Thank you. That was the end of the second part of Chapter 3 of Fantasties. A Fairy Romance for Men and Women by George MacDonald 
This has been Kevin Green, reading for the Hot Cocoa Club. Please join me again for Chapter 4. Thank you. Goodbye.